Welcome to Menlo Church, and thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad that you're tuning in to Menlo Church Online. We at Menlo believe that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. Enjoy the, today's message. So I want to talk about something that might be a little bit hard for you today. It happened last week. It's called the Super Bowl. Anybody see that? Uh, it's an amazing game. Two incredible teams going head to head. And depending on who you were rooting for, you came out on one side or the other. I mean, for instance, if you were a Kansas City Chiefs fan, you know, you are over the moon right now. You are elated. You are excited. You're still glowing a week later. You know, you uh, are already the odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl next year. Your quarterback is the face of the NFL. I mean, what more could you ask for? You are overjoyed. You are experiencing happiness. But if you're a Niners fan, our prayer team will be right over here at the end of the service. <laughs> We'd love to meet with you and get you in a group to process your pain. We are here for you. We love you so much. I mean, it was a fun game, let's all be honest. For three quarters, it was exciting, it was competitive, it was head-to-head, lots of high-fives and cheering and yelling and screaming, and then the fourth quarter happened. Three touchdowns, 21 unanswered points. Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. I can see the pain in your eyes, it's still fresh, the wounds. But it's interesting how we all experience the same thing, but there are some people who came out of that game experiencing a lot of joy, and some people came out of that game feeling a lot of depression, right? A lot of sadness, and kind of that's how life works sometimes. Um, Think about relationships, for instance. Uh, You can fall in love with someone, be head over heels. I mean, who doesn't love love? Who doesn't love falling in love? You can fall in love with somebody, and they could, you know, capture your heart, but that same person has the power and the capacity to break your heart and to make you very, very sad. I'm gonna give you one more example of this, and this one hits really close to home, but I'm gonna share it with you. This last week, my nine-year-old son, Max, was uh, out on the playground at school playing on the monkey bars, his favorite place to go. He's swung on the monkey bars for hundreds of hours. If you just look at the palms of his hands, his calluses will prove to you that he's part kid heart monkey. I am not kidding you. He loves the monkey bars. It brings him such great joy. It's his happy place. But last week, while he was swinging on the monkey bars, he slipped and he fell. And this is a structure that's given him hours and hours of happiness. I mean, usually he's got a grin from ear to ear, but on this particular day, he fell. And in an instant, he broke both bones in his left arm. One second, he was swinging from the bars, happy as can be, and then another second later, he was on the ground, writhing in pain. Now, if you're wondering how Max is doing today, he is doing much better. He's wearing a big, bright red cast, and among his friends and his brothers, it's like a badge of honor to have a cast. And I was the first one to sign it, D-A-D, Dad, right? Proud of you. Nothing that a little ice cream can't help. You know, the monkey bars for Max was a source of joy, but on that particular day, it was a source of pain. And most people want joy. 
Most people, if you ask them what they want in life, they'll tell you, I want to be happy. I mean, just ask anybody. Say, hey, what do you want most out of life? And they will tell you, I want to experience happiness. I had a friend once who had a kid, a a, a son, and I said, hey, what do you want your son to become when he grows up? What do you want him to be? And I was expecting him to say something like a teacher or an engineer or a doctor or something, and he said, I want my son to be happy. I don't care what he does, who he becomes, I want him to become happy. I think we all want that. And we go to a lot of places looking for happiness. A lot of times people will look to religion. They'll look to someone like Buddha or the Dalai Lama or we'll look at pop psychology. Uh, Or maybe lately the trend is to find the nearest mindfulness studio down the street and find happiness there. Maybe for you it's a warm tropical vacation or dinner at a hot new restaurant or maybe just a big bonus check at work. Whatever it is, we are always pursuing this thing called happiness. Now, the great minds of church history, they were well aware of this, and many of them spoke to this. In the fourth century, St. Augustine said, every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. This was back in the fourth century. And then a few hundred years later, in the 12th century, Thomas Aquinas wrote, man is unable not to wish to be happy. This is all I can think about. It's like, how can I become happy? Where is happiness found? And then a few hundred years later, in the 16th century, Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and theologian, he said, all men seek to be happy. This is without exception. And then here in the 21st century, theologian Pharrell Williams said, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth, right? (laughs) Happiness is one of the most universal human desires. Throughout history, both religious and secular people have identified happiness as a basic human need, and it's not just a modern self-obsession. It's a thirst, it's a longing that's deeply embedded in God's creation. The longing for happiness has been present throughout every age and across every culture. Scripture reveals to us that happiness is rooted in the character of God. And it's only when we believe that God is happy that we can believe God wants us to be happy. The reason why more Christians don't experience happiness and joy is because they don't believe God himself is happy. And therefore, they don't seek their happiness in him or from him. But I love the way Dallas Willard once said it. He said, God is the most joyous being in the universe. So when it comes to people, God doesn't just want us to feel happy. God wants us to become the kind of people that are happy. Uh, His desire isn't to just give us joy, but God's desire is for us to become a people who are joyful. And people who are joyful, grateful, at peace, tend to be more loving than people who are depressed or grumpy or critical. And I I speak this from my own personal experience. But God wants you to be joyful, more joyful and more loving. So we're starting a series this weekend called The Pursuit of Happiness. And this is a really important topic because we find ourselves in a culture that struggles to find joy and happiness. We live in a country that was founded on this idea that we could attain it. In the Declaration of Independence, it says that everyone has certain unalienable rights. 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Isn't it interesting how that's written? We're guaranteed life, we're guaranteed liberty, but happiness, good luck finding it. Go pursue it all you want. And here's the thing. As a nation, we are unhappier than we've ever been. We are facing an epidemic of anxiety, a crisis of depression. Suicide is through the roof. Neurosis is at an all-time high, not to mention the breakdown of families and marriage. Last year in the United States alone, we spent over $500 billion on advertising. Advertising, which is basically saying, if you buy what we have, you'll be happy. Drive this car and you'll be happy. Eat at this restaurant, you'll be happy. Wear this clothes, visit this place, live in this house, and you will be happy. We spend billions of dollars a year making the promise that if you buy what we're selling, you'll find happiness. But will we? Do we? Do we find happiness that way? The pursuit of happiness can lead you anywhere and everywhere, and we have to be careful where it takes us and what we find. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be studying a letter together that was written over 2,000 years ago to a group of Christians that were living in a Roman colony in a city called Philippi. Philippi was in northern Greece, and it was one of the first places in Europe that received the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and where it began to spread throughout the house churches. It was written by a man named Paul around the year 60, 61 AD, and as we're going to discover in this letter, Paul did not write this from the beach or the ocean on sabbatical. Paul wasn't taking a break from his ministry and reflecting on the goodness of life. As we read this letter, what we'll discover is Paul wrote this letter from prison of all places. His future was up in the air, his life was hanging in the balance, He's waiting to stand trial before Caesar the king, who is the most powerful man in the known world. He has no idea what's going to happen to him. Is he going to live or is he going to die? Will he be guilty of treason and blasphemy and sentenced to execution? Or will he be set free and found not guilty and be allowed to continue traveling throughout the Mediterranean world and go visit his friends all over? Paul has no clue what his future holds. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you don't know what your future holds and it just fills you with angst, anxiety? Do you ever worry about what is going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year? Will there be good news for me or will there be bad news? Will there be joy or will there be sorrow? Scholars think that Paul was sitting in this prison for four to five years, waiting, waiting, waiting for this trial to happen, waiting to see what his future held, waiting to stand before Caesar to find out if he was going to be freed or if he was going to be executed. Now, you'd think Paul would be an absolute wreck. He'd be a hot mess, nervous, stressed out, out of his mind, crazy. But that's not what we find when we read this letter. Instead, what we find is someone who is utterly filled with joy. And as Paul writes this letter to his friends in Philippi, the theme of joy is pervasive. It jumps off the pages. He mentions it 16 times. 
And he begins his letter in verse 12 by saying, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's writing his friends in Philippi and he's saying, what has happened to me? Now we know at least what he's referring to is his current situation. He's in jail. He's chained to two Roman guards. He's waiting for his sentence. But we also know that Paul went through a lot more than that. Paul wrote another letter to a group of friends in a city called Corinth. And in this letter, he lists this long laundry list of experiences that he had to endure. I'm gonna read that for you really quickly. Paul said, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And yet Paul says in verse 18, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation. Paul doesn't sound like someone who's living in a dark dungeon, locked up in chains. He doesn't sound like someone who's been through all these things that he's just listed. He doesn't sound like someone who doesn't know what his future holds and what tomorrow will bring. Paul had every reason to be stressed, to be anxious, to be hopeless and discouraged, but that's not what we find in this short, remarkable letter to his friends in Philippi. Of all the letters he wrote in the New Testament, this is the warmest letter. It's kind of like a thank you letter more than anything else. What we find in Philippians is a man who's at the end of his life and he writes to his friends with a joyful spirit. And I believe as we look through this letter over the coming weeks, we might be able to learn something from Paul and what he had to say. Paul begins his letter in chapter one by saying, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Paul begins this letter with gratitude. Paul begins with gratitude. He says, I thank my God every time I think of you. I am filled with joy. You know, people who are most joyful tend to be people who are also very grateful. Joy and gratitude tend to go hand in hand. And and that's what gratitude can do. It has the power to transform the way we think. It it gives us the mindset of abundance. It, It means that what we have is more than enough when we're grateful for it. But without gratitude, without being thankful, we can easily complain and quickly slip down into a negative spiral. Think about this for a second. Consider this. 
Everyone here today probably has a refrigerator back at home. Right? And we take our refrigerators for granted, but think about it for a second. It's a, an incredible invention. You know, for thousands of years, people couldn't preserve their food or they couldn't create ice. But at home, we all have this place where we can go that's loaded with fresh food, uh, with, with eggs, with bacon, with milk, with vegetables and produce, and it creates ice. And anytime you're hungry, you can just go into the kitchen, open your refrigerator, and voila, there's something to eat. But I'll be honest with you, sometimes when I'm not grateful, I go to my refrigerator, I'll open it up, and I'll say, ah, we've got nothing to eat. You ever do that sometimes? I have teenagers in my house. They open the refrigerator multiple times a day. They open it up, and they say, Mom, Dad, there's nothing to eat. And they're staring at food, right? The same thing happens when I look into my closet on the mor- in most mornings. You know, I'm getting up, getting ready for work, and I'll open my closet, and I'll look at all this clothes. I mean, it's just like falling off the shelves. There's clothes that I haven't worn for weeks, months, years. And I'll say, oh, I don't have anything to wear today. Do you, you ever do that? You know, when I say I don't have anything to wear, that usually means I haven't done the laundry. I need clean clothes. When my wife says I don't have anything to wear, she usually means I don't have anything new I like, right? Two different things. But that's what happens to us when we're not grateful. We begin, we begin to think we don't have enough. We complain, and what we do to pursue happiness is we try to accumulate more. And all it does is become a self-perpetuating cycle of unhappiness and discontentment. At this point in Paul's life, he has nothing. Paul doesn't even have his own freedom. But what we find in Paul is gratitude. He knows that even though he has nothing, he has enough. He's thankful for his friends. He's thankful that they're praying for him, that they're thinking of him. He's confident that what God has started, he's going to finish. And so Paul writes in verse seven, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So Paul begins the letter with gratitude, but then Paul doesn't put his joy or his hope on his situation. They're not based on his circumstances. And here's what's fascinating. 2,000 years later, today, we have all of this research that shows us what happiness and circumstances do to our lives. There's a well-known psychologist named Martin Seligman who popularized positive psychology. Back in 2002, he wrote a book called Authentic Happiness. And at the heart of his book is a formula for happiness. It's kind of an overview of all the factors that influence how happy you are. And in it, he gives us this formula. It goes like this, H equals S plus C plus V. H equals S plus C plus V. Now, in case you're not familiar with this formula, let me explain it for you. H stands for happiness, all right? This is a formula for happiness. And Martin Seligman, he he differentiates momentary happiness from enduring happiness. Momentary happiness is uh, something that can be easily increased by little things, little things like uh, praise from your boss, maybe chocolate, uh, a fun movie, sex, flowers, a massage. These things will give you momentary pleasure, momentary happiness. But momentary happiness is not the goal. It, It comes and goes. The goal is enduring happiness. 
And that's what the other three variables will show us. The S in this equation stands for your set range or your genetic makeup, your set range. Now, here's some discouraging news. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way. About 50% of your happiness is completely out of your control because it depends on your genes. And I'm not talking about the pants you're wearing. I'm talking about your DNA and your genetic code. This means that some people are just a little more wired to be happy and joyful, and some people are a little more wired to be sad. For instance, if you were to win the lottery, right, you would be happy probably for months and months, but eventually you'll gravitate back to your set range. You won't be perpetually happy. Or if something negative happens, if you lose your job and get fired, you'll be disappointed for a few weeks, but you won't be perpetually disappointed. Eventually you'll come back to your set point, and that's what this S is. This is your genetic wiring, and you can thank your grandparents for this one. The C in this equation stands for your circumstances. These are external circumstances like where you live, how much money you make, your job, your lifestyle. And if you think about these circumstances, changing them are either impractical, expensive, or just downright impossible. There are some things we just cannot change regarding our external circumstances. But here's the thing. Even if you could change all of your external circumstances, it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Do you know why? Because all psychologists, all psychologists will agree that your circumstances only account for about 8 to 15% of your happiness. Every psychologist will tell you this. Your, your circumstances only influence about 8 to 15% of how happy you feel today. And the good news is this. There's a set of internal circumstances that are easier to change and will have a greater impact on our happiness. These internal circumstances are what the last variable, V, is all about. V stands for voluntary. The voluntary variables in your life. What we think about, what we do with our minds and with our bodies, the things we choose. This accounts for about 40% of a person's happiness. The more positive you choose to feel about your past, present, and future, the happier you'll be. Therefore, if you ra to, to raise your enduring level of happiness, you have to change the way you feel about your past. You have to change the way you're thinking about tomorrow, and you also have to choose how you want to experience the present. And this accounts for about 40% of your state of happiness. Paul's circumstances were not great. He was locked up in jail. He was facing a trial that was going to lead to his eventual execution. But Paul's hope wasn't in his circumstances. His joy was found in something far more transcendent. Paul didn't let the fact that he was chained up in prison affect his happiness, and as the research will show us, it would only account for about 10% of his state of happiness anyway. Instead, Paul chose joy. Paul chose gratitude. He thinks of all the friends right now who are praying for him. He thinks of all of them, and he says, God, I thank you as I think about my friends in Philippi. 
You see, choosing things like joy and gratitude and peace are also called spiritual disciplines or habits or practices. And they're voluntary actions that can impact how we feel and influence our spiritual formation. Let me ask you this. How many of you think right now the world could use a little more joy? Could the world use a little bit more peace right now? Because it seems like every day when we read the headlines, all it does is lead to despair. There's war and violence. There are outbreaks, the coronavirus, natural disasters. And then we all have our own everyday struggles, the things that we go through that, that people may, may or may not know about. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear in the world today. But the pursuit of happiness is not about ignoring and minimizing the things that are happening in the world. The pursuit of happiness is not about compartmentalizing, putting the good things over here and the bad things over there and just dealing with them separately. The pursuit of happiness is about a posture of surrender and trusting in a God who is faithful, who, will begin, who began a good work in you and will carry it on to completion. And as Paul waits to hear about what's gonna happen in his future, he knows it can go in one of two directions, but for him, whether it's life or death, Paul has confidence. Paul has this assurance that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. He writes in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever happens to Paul, regardless of his circumstances, he's putting his hope in Christ. And then what he does is he encourages his friends in Philippi to do the same. He says in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way to translate that could be like this. No matter what happens, this is the most important thing. Live as citizens of the kingdom of God. No matter what happens. Think about that for a moment. He says, live as citizens of the kingdom of God. He's writing this to a Roman colony in northern Greece. These are people who are under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire and King Caesar. And, and Paul is saying, you have a more powerful king. You have a more ultimate king. You belong to a kingdom that is not of this earth. And live your lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Paul is saying, be aligned in your thinking, in your thoughts, in your actions, in your desires to be in Christ, to love others, to celebrate joy and spiritual formation. We're gonna impact this for the next few weeks as we read throughout this letter. It's an incredible letter and there's so much we can learn for it, but, but today as we close, I want you to remember two things. Two things are, there are two things I want you to remember from Paul. One is this, choose gratitude, choose gratitude. Remember, these are the, the voluntary variables that can influence up to 40% of our state of happiness. Try something simple like every day before you get started, think of, think of three things that you're grateful for 
Or be like Paul. Think of three people that you're grateful for every morning and then write their names down. There's something about thinking about these people and then writing their names down and then thanking God for, thank you for my mom who called me last week to see if everything's okay, to see how Max is doing. Thank you for Max for healing his arm. For, it could have been so much worse. Thank you for my wife who supports me and encourages me. Every, just write down their names and then do it every single day. Or maybe at the end of your day, look back at all the conversations you had, all the experiences you had, all the interactions that you experienced, and pick one, just one. I mean, you can pick five or 10 if you want, but just pick one interaction or experience that you're thankful for. God, thanks for that conversation I had over lunch today. Thanks for that coworker who helped me complete that project. Thanks for the neighbor that I bumped into this morning while I was taking out the trash. Short conversation we had. We can practice gratitude. It is a spiritual discipline. Paul said, I thank my God every time I think of you. Even in his circumstances, Paul chose gratitude. That's the first thing, choose gratitude. And then secondly, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul said, Christ in me is to live. To die is gain. To live as Christ. Paul is saying, if you seek happiness for happiness itself, it will always evade you. It will always elude you. It will only be momentary. But if you seek God, if you pursue Christ, what you'll find is enduring joy and true happiness along the way because God's faithfulness and God's love is transcendent. And that's the kind of experience that brings us enduring joy and happiness, not momentary pleasure. I wanna close with this quote. It's from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. And he wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, let's not settle for less, for momentary happiness. Let's pursue God Let's live as citizens of his kingdom. Let's seek out Jesus' will for our lives. And along the way, we will find joy and happiness together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the ultimate source source of joy and that you are the happiest person in the universe. And God, as we struggle to find happiness, as we struggle to find joy, as we are faced with discouragement and despair, God, we can only look to you because we know that everything else in this life doesn't really stand the test of time, but you, God, transcend your faithfulness, your love, your goodness, your mercy, your kindness. It leads us to repentance. We can change our minds and our thoughts and our habits and direct them to you, as Paul said, to live in you, to live in Christ. And so, God, as we seek you, as we trust you, as we 
as we do our best to follow you, may we find in this journey joy and the kind of happiness that endures, the kind of happiness that we find in Paul in this letter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in with us today. We hope you feel inspired, maybe even challenged by what you heard in the message today. Maybe figure out how you might want to apply that to your life this week. Please join us again and follow us on social media to find out all the latest happenings here at Menlo Church. We'll see you next time.